Welcome back to the Black Objective. We're back again, discussing all of the issues that matter. And again, you know, I've got another great, great, great guest again today. Now, it's not every day you get to speak to someone with an MBE. It's, it's not every day. You know, the, the word's getting out there about the Black Objective. So we've got someone with 20 years of experience of working with the youth. Obviously been very good at it because he's been um, awarded an MBE. Before I introduce you, now, I can't even introduce you because i got I got I got to make sure I get the name right. <laughs> go on, sir. Go on. So I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to yeah. go Raheem Lukman Mu Kapera. That, you know what? 98% correct. <laughs> Ibrahim Lukman Mukepara, but thank you so much, blessing. Okay, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Effort. Thank you. Formerly known as Rob Rodney L Grant, mm-hmm. so I, yeah. I imagine there's a story behind that. But before Indeed. we get into that, welcome. Yes, welcome. yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, Dre. Really appreciate it. Um, looking forward to just sharing with your audience. Thank you for just having the opportunity to just really talk about you know my journey. Um, and, and different experiences I've had and hopefully just share some light on, on, on certain things. I think that it's always good to have great conversations that can enrich the community. And, you know, thank you for doing the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, yeah, the, the Black Objective has been growing and growing and uh, we're getting thousands of listeners now. Um, and I mean, this is a, a, a platform we started about nine weeks ago started started wow. the insta page nine weeks ago we've got we've got over four thousand followers now we've got thousands of people log, listening to the podcast so your your messages will be heard your messages Indeed. will be heard well, <laughs> listen we're, we're, we're both here and we're both here to share so let's 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 get into the meat let's let's, let's go yeah, yeah. all right all right, all right. so today's topic mm. we are talking about youth crime mm-hmm um a topic which i have huge interest in huge interest in I grew up in london and at some point you would you, we we were all one of these disenfranchised kids that they 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 like to describe mm-hmm. as feral kids running around the city stabbing everyone um oh, yeah. stealing um committing mass crime um, and um, it being splashed across the newspapers as, as if that is the um, um, the <laughs> is, is that is that the norm? Um, yeah. now you've worked in Haringey. Um, now Haringey is the fourth most deprived area in London. Now, can you, before we go into it, just give us a bit of a background of where you've been, what you've done? And, and the experience that you've gathered over these 20 years? Wow. Um, I love the question. Like, you'll give me breath here. So I'm going to try and <laughs> try and keep it short and sweet. So um, I think the first thing to say is really, you know, above everything else that I'm, you know, a child of, you know, a, a mother who raised me from, from St. Vincent, a grandmother who put certain principles and the culture that really instilled that, I needed to do the best for myself, right? Um, and 
you know, not really, not wanting to date my age or anything, but, you know, I grew up in a time in Tottenham whereby, yes, you still had the negative stigma, particularly I, I was, you know, grew up by the time when you had Broad Wars Farm just kicking off and stuff like that. But we still had some semblance of community, I think, within like the, even the roles that we're in, right? Um, you know, I grew up in Tottenham in Bruce Grove where you could still leave your door open in the morning, right? People would, if, if they, you left it open, people would put your milk in the side and, and close the door. You know, we, we had, um, we played out on the street. We, we had um, every Christmas time, you know, every neighbour would come out, wish everybody happy Christmas. Um, it was a case of your, your disciplinarians were not just, okay, your parents, but they were the elders on the road. And so even when we were getting up to our certain ways, you know, when you saw that elder, regardless of what race she was, you, you kind of straightened up because you knew that, mm. okay, there's a correction that might come from that person, but you didn't want the double correction just in case that elder told your parent, you know, that was a double embarrassment, right? And um, it's, it's kind of interesting because... I've, I've lived in different places. So, you know, formerly, actually, I was, I was actually born in the States. I was, I was born in the States. I was born in Queens, um, New York. And I came over to the UK when I was four, um, where my mom and dad split up. And um, after being, you know, for the majority of time, like in um, Harringay for about 12 years, then I went to St. Vincent, um, completed my secondary school and came back. And I've been through, you know, lived throughout even Europe, different places in the UK. And I have to say, in terms of my personal experience of living within Harringay, that's where I've actually oftentimes felt the safest. You know, I never had to get, um, except for a couple of occasions, but I've never had to fear, let's say, walking down the road and police chasing me. I've never had to combat this or fight combat 18, which I had to do when I was, you know, going to Enfield Grammar. You know, I've never been spat on by people or members of the public, you know. I've never had situations whereby I'll go to university and someone saying because I was from Tottenham that they pitied me, right? So the, the Tottenham, for me, always represented a place of safety for me, even now, right? Even now, and I think this comes with a certain connection to the people that you're assisting because you don't see any divide right like there's no okay i have this person i'm assisting no where where all you is we and so i know i'm gonna see the person down the road because they're part of my community you know whenever even when there's conflict i often say Look, i'm walking down the road when we finish you know you could come find me <laughs> like, I'm, you know so it's that kind of thing where i think in everything real recognizes real and that's something that i've i've to be honest, I've actually, if it wasn't for being in Tottenham, I wouldn't have that. You know, you have these certain ways where you have that pride of, you know, that esteem. And that's what Tottenham gave me to know that regardless of the situation, where are people who triumph against all walks? So regardless of the stigma, you want to say that we're the worst, you want to talk about the indices, you want to call us criminals, you want to say everything else. But we strive. And it's so interesting at the time when I grew up in Tottenham as well. I could pick out like about at least about three or four people. And it's kind of mad. I look back and like, I know, for example, um, Sharon D. Clark, who's a famous um, theatre actor, right? She lived opposite me, like where you have your house and you have the gardens separated. 
had to call her mom auntie, you know. Mm-hmm. You had um people from like a um poetry collective from Best Kept Secret, um like Oneness and Amanoir and Togstar. Th- those people, like particularly Oneness, her dad is was like my uncle. He taught me how to ride my bike, you know. So we did not at that time take on the kind of societal as much as we could. We were kind of buttressed against the societal stigma which told us that we were not and we were not supposed to be because we knew ourselves and we stood our ground and we had that, right? And I think that one of the difficulties sometimes is one having, not having these conversations about, you know, what the past was like and how things have changed, but also the youth today are under such an onslaught that, you know, when, when I hear a lot of criticism that kind of castigated against the youth, I say, well, it's not really your place to to really criticize because you're not living their truth now, right? You're not having to deal with, let's say, like someone having a knife or a gun or something and just like, because they're shook, they wanted to take you out. Like we we were like fisticuffs, you know, like old school. You know, old school was like, okay, well, the more that I fight and if I take that fight, even if I'm fighting for a man, that's my pride, right? Now it's a case of people want to get home alive, right? Life's on the line now. Yeah, and, and, and this, it's the thing of, um, you know, there, so much has been spoken about in the media about, um, you know, racial diversity and like, inclusion and stuff. But ultimately, when it comes to our youth, and, and this is, we could go on to this a bit further, but I really think that our first responsibility, I think, as like, custodians and elders and parents, is to ensure that our youth are given as much esteem and self-confidence to know that they could go and tackle the world with everything. And with that, you have additional support as well. But that's kind of our responsibility, I'll say, for my generation. Not to be so hypercritical to say, you are not doing this. Because to be quite frankly, the youth that we have and the skills that they have, they are the best that we've ever had. Yeah. And they need to hear that as well. Yeah, uh, for sure. I hear what, you, hear what you're saying. Um, I think previously, um, as you said, you're you're almost naive to what society perceives you are when 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 you're young, um, and when you grow up in the ends, let's call it the ends. I grew up yeah, in yeah, Northwest yeah. London. Yeah, yeah. Um, North Weezy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. North Weezy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's normal. Um, there, and but that normal places odds against you. Mm-hmm. That that you, you you're desensitized to so much at such a young age that that, that you, you're not even realizing that actually the opportunities that you are up against or, or the odds that you're up against actually um, have have negative um, possible negative outcomes for you. Now the, the the socioeconomic positioning of black people in British society isn't an accident. No, 100%. It's not an answer. It's a product and series of relationships between the colonial empire and how Britain was established. Now, ultimately, and I've had loads of discussions about this, um, Mm -hmm. some of the stats, if you look at the stats, you'll see black people in the lower domains of these statistics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the outcomes that happen, let's say, let's just speak specifically about London. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, because the national picture is slightly different. If we talk about London and this disproportion of um, representation of, say, um, black black young kids in uh, the nice statistics, um, in incarceration, 
um, in the criminal um, justice system. Uh, it all, for me, comes back to the financial positions and, and um, the, the opportunities that the families can allow them. Mixed with, as you said, the onslaught of the media and what um, they're, they're perceived to be. So yeah. it is not a great combination um, to succeed from. So when, I don't know, so many people have succeeded. That is to be commended. Um, you know, you know, brother, I, I, I really, um, you know, I give thanks, right? Because, uh, you know, I wouldn't even be having this discussion if it wasn't for so many people in my past and, and the community even now which have laid the foundation for me to even like be here and and that's that's the really deep honesty um and i think there there's so much to be said about you're right our, our so our social economic situation and really understanding that when we're talking about systemic racism it's not something that's you know like abstract and symbolic and you know, something that, okay, doesn't really exist because, okay, it's not something that's personal. You know, someone's not being physically aggressed, whether verbally or otherwise, right? The, the statistics that we see that come out of us being disproportionately targeted and not given access to equal resources as citizens in the country ensure that systemic racism is violence. And no one really wants to say that, right? It's as violent as if I took a gun and shot you, right? But it's that kind of polite violence whereby I could use policy and law and various different obfuscations to say, okay, well, that just happens to be the, the right way. You know, I could kill you with equality if I don't give you equity, you know, mm -hmm. right? I could kill you with equality by saying, okay, you have an equal chance. But by me saying, okay, but, but by me knowing that by the very area where you live, it is less likely, even though you have an equal chance, that you'd ever have a way of accessing that opportunity then what has actually been the point? So I know, for example, um, you have what's called the multiple deprivation indices that are a measure of, you know, the various um, deprivational indexes throughout different wards within the country. Comes out every five years. I think the last one is in 2016, okay? Now, I know by the fact of me just living in the east side of Haringey, my life has reduced by seven years on average, just by living there, yeah? And that's because it's that old kind of adage whereby, you know, you're known by the company you keep, you know, you, you are influenced by your environment. And regardless of me just even doing the right things all the time, it is likely that I will die seven years sooner than someone who's probably living in Muswell Hill, right? Just because of the socioeconomic condition. The facts are that we are not given equal we're not given equal acceptance as human beings to have access. And this is something that it happens in the UK. You're right. It is that vestige of um, imperialism and colonialism. And it's that whole issue about white supremacy, white privilege and white fragility when we start talking about these things. And then people have an issue about the words that we use because people feel uncomfortable. Um, I'm happy to say that I've had a discussion, a quite senior discussion, where I've had to say, well, no, it's time to be uncomfortable because we've been uncomfortable for the last over 50 years. We've celebrated Windrush and that's over 50 years ago. 
you know, it's not necessarily an educational point that we don't know when you put people in certain circumstances and when you don't give people equal access and resources and when you have a curriculum that doesn't esteem them and when you exclude them to a um, proportionality where it's four times the general average of the population and when you don't give resources to children who are deemed SEN and you call them subnormal and when you have an educational system where I have put my child in the educational system for over 18,000 hours and they can't get one GCSE. How can you say that the child's a failure where you've had 18,000 hours with my child? It, so, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's the realness of the situation whereby we as a community for the longest while in, I think in our, the best aspects of us have been wishing for other people to change for our benefit. And I think it's now come to the time, and many people have said this, but we also have to take the ultimate responsibility to know that things aren't going to change until we change. You know, we, we, it, 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 to a certain degree, people can only treat you a certain way if you are a certain way, you know? And I think a lot of the conversations that, you know, I've just continued to have, it's really just about, okay, how can I support community? You know, how can I support youth? You know, I'm not even looking for someone to give me something. They should, but I don't even care anymore. <laughs> I'm wanting to ensure that the structures that are there so that I know that regardless of what happens, the community is left as strong, or the individuals are left as strong as they are. And I just think that that is generally what our work needs to be done for the future. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I, and I've said that a number of times across various platforms is that each person now needs to take responsibility. Um, it's one of the reasons for this platform is mm -hmm. to take personal responsibility to spread as much information um, of use as possible. Um, every every individual moving in one direction uh, will change can change a, a culture of of of, of um, deprivation. Really, what it is. Um, one, if you're in a if you're in a low socio socioeconomic um, um, position, um, your, your, your horizons and your expectations naturally will be lower because most of the people around you um, haven't seen much and don't expect much because day-to-day -day life is a grind um, and the area you, you live in, most people don't really venture that far from it. Um, as, as opposed to if you have um, a bit more money, uh, or if you're if you're a kid growing up in I don't know, as you said, Muswell Hill, they've gone on holiday, they've they've, yeah. they've gone to the um, Lake District and seen how beautiful it is. They they, they understand the concept of there are other things. Um, their time is taken up. Their their mum and dad are not working two jobs, and actually they're in clubs, and their time is used. Um, yeah. uh, there's there's so many complexities to it um that ultimately for me come back to, to that socio-economic position so mm. now you've worked for 20 years with youths can you on just give, on and off yeah. on and off yeah. um just give us a bit of a flavor about what that work entailed a lot of it you know what a lot of it is just like building up trust to be honest like do you know what i mean i think it's uh, you, you obviously have, I mean, in, in 
the work that I did, it was working with DWP. And oftentimes that was on various different inclusion programs, engagement programs, um, working with sometimes ex-offenders, people at risk of exploitations, which could include, include gang involvement, um, young people who are just 18 to 24, long time unemployed, um, lone parents, like the whole raft, right? And ultimately, I think my approach has always been, you know, you need to actually get to know the person first, right? You can't advise, you can't talk about anything until you build up a connection with the young person. Oftentimes, that is sometimes the most difficult thing because, you know, even with my involvement with um, being a care leader lead, etc., you've had young people who have gone through various different authorities that have either promised them something or promised and not delivered, you know? So to, to be the face of another authority to say, okay, well, you need to go through this process. Anybody, you know, will not be engaged. And I think it's that, that aspect. I think when we are talking about young people, you know, give, give them their respect. <laughs> you know, it's just this thing of sometimes, right, we're going to do this to young people and not even finding out what their, their aspirations and their wants and their dreams might be. And that takes time. You know, if, if, I, if anybody has, you know, um, now is kind of like a popular focus on, you know, trauma-informed practice. And I'm, I'm really happy that that's actually coming about in, I think, wider discussions because, you know, many of us, youth, young people and, and olders have experienced different levels of um, trauma, but we've never necessarily recognised that. And we haven't recognised how that actually affects our actions. So when we're engaging with young people and then, you know, you have the common trope of, oh, young people don't want to do anything or, you know, they're not listening. Well, have you actually understood that, you know, you maybe shouldn't have that certain expectation for that young person? You know, even if a young person says, yes, they want to do that, but they might not even have the capacity and understanding how to do it. You know, you need to show the young person. And that's, I think, uh, I suppose, a general criticism I have with like practice in general. Um, we, we tend to, again, talk to young people and not show them how to do it. And even when we're talking about interventions where we're leading people off pathways of crime, you cannot... I beg anybody like to, to speak to a young person who's, you know, maybe working in, you know, the grey economy saying, right, oh yeah, you know, you need to come off road and stuff. And the young person, if they're polite, might agree with you. But then how could you then take away that young person's maybe sole source of finance, at least in their mind, or their sole source of maybe esteem and aspiration in their mind and not give them anything to replace it? And don't talk about work experience necessarily or apprenticeships, because if I'm getting let's say like four, five bags like a week or even a day, right? How are you going to ask me to go to an apprenticeship with £3.50 an hour? How are you going to ask me to then submit to a structure whereby you, I've been on road doing what I'm doing, but yet you want me to submit a man to call him boss to tell me to go and pick up, pick up this and pick up that. So it's that thing where, you know, we, we have to deal with the, the problems practically and with reality and with real solutions. And oftentimes... What, what, where I think that wider structures have failed and, but are improving, you know, you need to include the youth in the discussion. Like, they know what they want, right? They might not know how to get it, but at least they might have an inkling of, okay, okay well, we want to have a discussion about this. Or at least when we're having certain provisions, we're able to get that peer assessment and that, you know, impact assessment to say, 
are we really helping young people in a way that they want to be helped or are we just doing a tick box exercise so when do you have funders who are getting um whatever money from whatever part to say that they're impacting because they're giving entrepreneurial skills or not even that sorry employment skills entrepreneurial skills are quite good but it, let's say em employment skills okay well great but then if i don't have five gcses and i don't even know anybody who's ever worked in that job that i said i want and you're not even helping me with that what's that gonna do you know i've never seen anyone in my life actually complete that job or work a job i don't have that example so how is me doing a, oh i could write a cv i could write a cover letter i can apply online okay what's what's that gonna do i'll do it but then afterwards, I don't, I don't, I don't have the example and, and and the confidence necessarily, or even the understanding that that's even a viable pathway. Uh, alongside the socioeconomic advantages um, of being in, in in a different echelon, mm. comes 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 nepotism, and mm. um, and and links and. Um, um, hand ups and uh, assistance, which is um, uh, often not taken into consideration, um, is that actually if you're poor, um, there's limitations into to who your parents know, and yeah. ultimately, if you haven't had loads of opportunity coming up and you're living in a poor area and schooling's gone off. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you've got you, you've you've fallen into the the wrong side of the track to get back into mainstream life is hard. Yeah, it's hard. You're not realistically okay. I, I, I've seen many of these 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 courses where they they're offering life skills and, and CV writing and so it, I think is look CV writing you can find that you can you can Google that. You know, yeah. what people are looking for is ironclad opportunity. Because as I was speaking to, um, I was in one of my other podcasts, and I was talking to someone, and they said, basically, you can go to mostly any job, unless it's like a surgeon or something where you've had to do grand scale studying. And entry roles within that organization, which may be paying well, Ultimately, they can be learned. Yeah, they, they they can be learned. Um, so if the government was ultimately really serious about this, they could have these initiatives where these people are placed into these organizations yeah. <laughs> without having to jump through these and and competing against people who haven't had the same. Mm -hmm. No, a hundred percent. I think that um. So there's a lot to be said. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I am actually trying to shorten it. But there's a lot to be said about, um, again, just putting someone through just a cookie cutter system. And, you know, we all, we all know that there, there's probably bigger investment in terms of, I think even Akala said it um, years ago, like there's bigger investment in terms of prisons than there is in entrepreneurship education. You know, it's, and it's that thing of, there's always a difference between for me, education and training, right? I think what we, what we get in school is training and they train you to absorb a lot of information as that kind of academic based information that really you could probably get from Google. Right? <laughs> and it's, you know, there's less, at least in our public schools on critical thinking, on problem solving. 
and actually, you know, figuring out how you chart your individual life um, course and you being like an agency of change. You know, when you have private schools, the whole aspect about private schools is that they're put on a path whereby they're already told that they're leaders. I've seen many a private student who have been in positions and, you know, said certain things and pushed themselves forward and they don't know a damn thing. <laughs> but because of their schooling, they feel that it's their responsibility to be in a to leadership be, <laughs> To be and, there. <laughs> and that's the difference. You know what I mean? It's, so when, when we're told, we're taught to be workers effectively. And there's this great quote where they say that, you know, most of us, we have, you know, 21st century students taught by 20th century teachers based on a 19th century curriculum for 18th century economy. Because that's where really the, <laughs> the industrial <laughs> revolution. <laughs> yeah. It's, so so the, the deepness of it is this, is that if we're really focusing on education, education is all about, you know, it comes from the Latin word educare, which means to bring out. and one of the things that you know i repeat like our youth are the best that we ever had because i see so much genius in our youth except no one's ever going to tell them that right because it's not in a design because we're going to have too many people who want to rule so we need some workers or some persons who we just need to you know ask them to go into prison or you know maybe join the army or do something else to you know foster another economic system the thing is at the end of the day is that you know our genius is not just in academic pursuits. We have various levels of education and um, it's like we, we have various levels of intelligences as well. So, you know, no one ever talks about, you know, our ability to problem solve. No one ever talks about, you know, our, our great ability to even, if you see us on a sports field, we're calculating how we're going to make that pass or how we're going to jump that hoop. You know, the best example of understanding that someone's a genius because it you you don't have to work it out on let's say a symbolic chart no you embody that knowledge because you're showing and proving it right do it and we need more examples where we're able to i think really credit ourselves with oh wow how were you able to program that how did you edit that how did you and it's unfortunately i think sometimes it also comes to again our home upbringing and it's not necessarily the thoughts even of our elders because half of our elders don't even know the economy has changed so much you know the advice that they're giving is from the best of their knowledge as what is the best pathway to success right i, 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 yeah, I think i think you've made a good point there because also i think after some of the black families can create this narrow lane of what is success for their children. Um, you have a lawyer, um, a doctor, um, I don't know, an accountant, whatever. It's a very, when there's so many things people can go into um, to be great and people should go into what they're passionate about and, and put their all, in, all, all into, but they don't know any better. Our, yeah. our parents are first generation um, yeah. <laughs> immigrants, you know? Um, who who struggled and faced huge amounts of racism and only got to really see mm -hmm. certain parts of this British society. Um, yeah. you, you know, we're, we're, we're a generation apart. So 
our viewpoint of what is possible is slightly different. Um, also, we're obviously in the, a bit more technically um, um, savvy as well. So there's so many opportunities which pe- people don't realise the world is their oyster because, first of all, they're not being told at home. The education system is not telling them. They're telling them they've got to work and they're like, this is dead. And then, what, I'm going to come out and earn just above minimum wave and I can't even afford to live in my own city. This is dead. <laughs> and it's real. It's real. It's, it's, it just sounds all so unrealistic and long mm. um, for, for, for people and they've got no financial um, fallback because most yeah. people's families are poor. So they don't have a five-bedroom house where, where their parents are saying, look, you, that's your passion? I'm going to fund you. I'm going to... Oh, I know someone who, who, who works in, um, I don't know, Adidas. <laughs> I don't know. You, you like training yeah. jobs? Go and do an um, um, uh, uh, apprenticeship in there. All these yeah. opportunities are a lot more limited um, within our community. Now, you worked in Haringey mm-hmm. for uh, a long time. Okay, now I, I'm going to say between July 2019 and June 2020, mm. Haringey registered the highest rate of knife crime yep. with injury in London. Yeah. Um, what What are your views on that? Um, now. <clears throat> Yeah. If we talk about statistics, okay, because mm. statistics, I like statistics, but obviously they've got to be taken with a pinch of salt as well because they can be manipulated. But mm. it is said that t- two thirds um, of knife crime uh, under 25 is, is committed by um, people who represent as black. <laughs> Mm. Now, what are your thoughts on this term, black on black crime? Okay, so straight up, I don't. It doesn't exist. That that's that's the short answer. It doesn't exist. And when I when I say it in this sense, people perpetrate crime. People often perpetrate um, crimes when it comes to victim crime where based on their economic situation. So whereby you have people from lower economic standards or so lower social economic, um, let's say subclassifications, it's more likely that they will perform a physical tra- crime on a person rather than somebody who's in a so-called higher social economic echelon where they also perpetrate, per- perpetuate crime, but it's deemed a white collar crime or it's often deemed a corporate crime whereby you don't see the victim, but their impact is often wider and longer lasting, right? People commit crime on a person based upon where they live. If a person lives in a poor economic area where there happen to be other poor economic people that look like them, then that person who happens to be black might perpetrate a crime on someone who happens to be black. Most of the crime that we actually see in the UK is white on white crime. Most of the crime we actually see in the UK in terms of statistics is white people committing crime against white people. But that's never called white on white crime. Why? Because it's, they're not one to be made the example, right? Because we are deemed the exception. And there's always this kind of pathologizing around what is the problem with black people whereby the question really should be what is the problem with your society 
and no one really wants to address that. Okay, so I there's not for me. I do not believe in a notion of black on black crime. Now, when you are talking about individuals, and I think the discussion of personal self-esteem versus group self-esteem, I think there is some work to be done in black so-called African Caribbean communities in terms of how we esteem ourselves as a community versus how we esteem ourselves personally. Like, because personally, like, our self-esteem is high. But in terms of when we're thinking about other black people, when I, you know, as a young person, if I'm thinking about another black person, if I have a certain negative feeling maybe perpetuated by my experiences and I see maybe something that is reflected in another person that looks like me, I may act that out. But that is no different from any other group. What the issue is, is the disproportionality whereby um, we may have a higher proportion within the group. But in terms of numbers, no, most crime is done by white people in this country. Yeah, that, <laughs> so that's a fact. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fact. So, so the, the issue that we have to come to, and this is also talking the wider piece about, you know, our you know, integrated communities and cohesion within ourselves, is the things that we are doing to build resilience amongst ourselves, but also taking into account that almost every facet of society, if you're looking at public systems, has an element whereby there's negative association when it comes to looking at black people. We've had, um, even most recently, when you had an organisation such as, I think it was Black, Curric black Curriculum, and they were asking the government to reassess their curriculum in terms of the way black people are um, portrayed in our history um, and to give a more balanced and accurate history in terms of what actually happened, not only during the colonial period, but even before then. And I think the response was something like, okay, well, there doesn't need to be a change because there's um, space available within the PSHE um, a curriculum, which is effectively like the you know social aspect of the curriculum, for someone to give a module about black history. And so there's something to be said where we're always seeing, whenever youth is like brought up, you're either seeing in, okay, the, the, the ne most negative aspects of drill gets brought up, you have, again, a knife crime aspect brought up, but then you never think about even the positives. So one like example, just generally, but any kind of um, opportunity I know I'm having like more recently now in talking, I always say, I'm dyslexic, you know? I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic. I have something called Erland syndrome. The reason why is because if you listen to the statistics, what they're gonna tell you is that between, I think 16 to maybe 40% of people in prison are dyslexic. But they don't want to tell you that at least was it the um, proportion of um, dyslexic business owners is twice the national average. Um, they don't want to tell you that 60% of millionaires and CEOs, I think that's 40%, are actually dyslexic. So if you're going to tell the story, tell the whole story then. Don't then kind of pigeonhole me to think the worst of myself and then be surprised that, you know, if I see a reflection of myself, I'm gonna feel certain ways towards even myself and that person and not have that community pride. Now, you, you touched on um, incarceration mm. because black people are seven times higher than even 
seven seven times higher than their share of population mm-hmm. in incarceration. That's even higher than America, America, where it's four times um, their their share of um, of, of the population. Mm-hmm. Now, as we we we, we touched on, um, we've got a situation currently where there seems to be a, an express road, express route. Mm-hmm. That you can you get that you, you, you can easily by the skin of your teeth just fall into and yeah. end up on the highway um to prison even though you're skilled and even though you're talented. You, there's so many talented footballers yeah. who end up in jail. I think there's yeah. one famous one from um Tottenham. I think um yes yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the name, but I, I recall it, yeah. Yeah. People with huge talents, but mm-hmm. still end up in prison. Now you never hear yeah. of, a, of a talented white kid who was in an academy mm. fall into the clutches of crime, yeah, and then end up in prison. Now that only can be a societal thing because yeah. no one's parents, no, no black person's parents <laughs> discuss their children. Going into crime, it's, no. it's it's in fact it's the extreme opposite. Yeah, it's it's the actual extreme to the. It, I think they probably talk about doing the opposite more than white Indian whatever yeah. other parents. Yeah, but there is yeah. still forces which mm-hmm. will take someone with even talents, huge talents, mm-hmm. to to go to go down that route. Now, your your work with youth, you must mm-hmm. have experienced. Mm-hmm. Working with people with huge talents, yeah, but unseen forces, yeah, unseen drivers end up with them falling to the wayside, yeah. Now, what do you think? As as, because, as you said, we discussed earlier, we said us as a community now, Mm -hmm. we almost need to take. A responsibility. Mm-hmm. What is it mm-hmm. we can do to better shield our children from this society? Because for me, yeah. I feel like the youth of today are subject to multiple serious harms of by society that they live. Mm-hmm. M- multiple. They 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 harmed by the education system. Imagine you're sitting in you're sitting in class, right? Yeah. I, just, I always remember back to my history class. <laughs> I'm sitting in class. Yeah. yeah. Out of nowhere, we start talking about slavery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's not even um, um, no warning. All of a sudden, we're talking about slavery. I'm sitting with um, my my white um, people, the, the white people in the class, and there's probably like, oh, let's say there's four black people in the class. And mm. I don't know, there's probably more, but whatever, let's just say there's four. And all of a sudden, we're talking about at one point in history about how. Um, the white people were superior to black people. Mm. What does that do for a young mind without... <laughs> okay, so... Um, so, yeah, I'll say this, right? So, even with everything that I've said about like, growing up in Tottenham at that time, like, the first time I was stopped by police, I was nine years old. Yeah? Um... 
my friends and I, we were playing by an estate as you do as kids, playing by the swings and stuff. We were just running and we had two constables stop us in the alleyway and ask us where we were going. And um, I suppose me being, I suppose, more mouthy one saying, well, we're playing. And then the, it was the question of, well, why are we playing? And then we got interrogated because they were trying to accuse us of starting a fire. Uh, my other friend was, you know, really upset because he'd already been in trouble with school. And then he wanted to, the police officer wanted to find out where we lived. Now I refused to give the address and then they let us go. And um, they said, okay, they'll be watching us. Now that was from nine. So the, when we talk about instances and interactions with the police and you know, feelings that we're got upon as a community, it's not just something in our heads. And when we're talking about children who, because effectively, like when we're talking also about you, let's, let's use the word, yeah, they're children oftentimes still. And we have an over-policing of our community where police are there and oftentimes you have some aspects of the police where their sole intention is to criminalise our young people. And we have the criminalisation start in our whole socialization from the time we're young. And whilst we're young, I couldn't really have the words to articulate that I was stopped by a racist officer, but I know how that made me feel. Mm. And so I think that if we're talking about young people who may have made a mistake, right? Because we all do. I mean, if we actually were to think about all the things that we did, majority of us could probably cite that if there was a police officer at one of those instances where we did something wrong, we could have been in trouble. So we have children who made a mistake. And the first thing that we have to do as parents, as custodians, as elders, as a community, is not give up on our children and see pride in our children, regardless of what anyone else is gonna say about our children. Because we know our children and we know their capabilities. Now, on a more practical level, it's very difficult, I think, for us when we are in positions where we're employed by, you know, the kind of majority ethnic, because white people are ethnic too, um, to afford positions where we have to, we are then trying to... Um, give access to our young people who may have had trouble, may have had a criminal record, and because we have certain factors that will say, okay, they're not going to give them the opportunity. So there's a big, I think, push that we have to really more think from a communal basis and actually do for self a lot more, whether we're thinking about businesses, social enterprises, charities, or even mentoring. And I say mentoring in the sense that Mentoring should not just be for children who happen to be in trouble. Mentoring is that practice whereby we're talking about the um, social connections. We're giving access to our young people to have those social connections so they're able to access opportunities and knowledge and experiences. And that's really where the active work is to ensure that we are financially in a position to give that support to our young people because they can't do anything without us standing up. We have to stand up first for them to be able to stand up. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I think there's been a big sea change over the last few months, which I hope 
sets the foundation for that train of thought where we're saying, you know what, we need to create our own institutions so that we can give our own opportunity, just like the Asians do. Um, we often refer to the Jews, what they do um, in terms of um, keeping their wealth within them, their, their communities. Now, that is a big, big, big piece of work because it means us doing a lot of changing our behaviours, changing yeah. our spending um, in the way we educate our children, um, what we advise them to do education. Now, if we look at that in terms of the home environment even, now, if we look at um, the Black Caribbean um, community, for, the statistics say 48% of them come from single parent homes. Mm-hmm. Now, with a, with a single parent home, I mean, with all the will in the world and, and um, however great mum they are, that you need, a, 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 you're going to have lower income coming into that house, number one. A, a, a huge amount of the time which then places them in that low socioeconomic um, <laughs> position where the outcomes are not great then there's also a reduction in the amount of parenting that can happen because time it will be will, will be limited um that feeds into kind of i feel some of the statistics um in terms of attainment um uh, for the black caribbean children um as well um and also it gets pounced upon because if you look at the the amount of exclusions black children who are coming from not probably ideal situations are four times as likely to be excluded so there's no there's no empathy there <laughs> it's it's <laughs> come yeah. on come on here <laughs> Listen, listen, I, I, I need to jump in because I think that, um, again, it's, it's and, and thank you for quoting the, the stats, because again, it's about us naming truth for us, right? So where you have someone stating a single parent statistic, it's not necessarily, I, I don't know of anybody having a child by themselves, right? So for me, there's no such thing as a single parent. And oftentimes we do have parenting going on, but the parents aren't in the same home. And I think the reason why I kind of make that distinction is that when you get typecast sometimes in a certain category, that in itself takes on another life. The reality is that we have many fathers, many mothers who aren't possibly maybe in the home but they're very active in their children's lives. And I think that we also have to give kind of credence to the fact that whilst things might not be ideal with maybe having the other partner in the home, there are many people I know who are really kind of still worth in getting engaged and involved in their children. Now, again, when we're talking about single parents, the ethnic that has the most single parents in this country are white English people. So if there was something endemic about being a single parent and then having an ish, these issues, therefore we'd see many of those issues with white single parents. And we don't. What often we do have, again, is a lack of cultural competence and a lack of rigidity when it comes to schools not applying anti-racist practices in a lot of their policies and the engagement 
particularly when it comes to a lot of our male youth. Oftentimes when it comes to a lot of our male youth and when they're engaging with particularly female, again, white ethnic female teachers, there is a lack of cultural competency whereby our expressions, our um, way of commanding ourselves, our way of our confidence gets construed as aggressiveness and then we are then more likely to be permanently excluded and then put through the pathway, what you're alluding to, the, what a lot of people like to call the prison pipeline. And so we need to deal with this understanding that for a lot of our interaction with white people and the education system in this country, it has been one of potential conflict and misunderstanding and lack of cultural competence, mainly by often white, white ethnic teachers. Now, I could, you could go back, way back to the 1970s and 60s, when our parents came over. And what had happened is that, you know, in, due to our cultural or mores, when we have elders that come and speak to us, many of our, you know, Caribbean elders and African elders would not necessarily look at a teacher within their eye, or, you know, they'll look down and, you know, wait for you know, a, t a t teacher to speak. Now, there's evidence, and I think it was Bernard Conrad, don't quote me on the book, but um, looking at when you had particularly Black Caribbean students in the 60s and 70s put into subnormal categorizations and sent to equivalent SEN schools because, again, of the lack of cultural competence that many of the white ethnic teachers had for what we were often showing was respect. And then oftentimes saying that we had some learning dis dis um, difficulty. And this has also been an issue why I think many of, I'll say my parents' generation, were very reluctant in terms of getting support where some of our children, like myself, did exhibit signs of, let's say, dyslexia, dyspraxia, maybe needed support because they didn't want us to be deemed as subnormal and then not given any access and any chance to life. So then even those children who actually did have, maybe need support help, we were actually... Um, not given the support that was due to us. And a lot of the things that happened in the past had led to the development of the um, black supplementary school movement in the 1980s to combat the racism, to actually provide um, self-esteem and resilience for our children, because we know the general state system did not provide that for many of our children and it continues today. And that is one of the flaws of statistics, you see. Is that it doesn't often break it down into socioeconomic categories. So, what would have been better is the percentage of black families in a certain socioeconomic position in comparison to all the other races and ethnicities in the in the country in that same socioeconomic position, and then the number of single parent families in comparison. So poor white families in Glasgow, for example, and the percentage of families up there who then have single parent families. That's a better comparator because if you think about um, the, 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 the amount of white people they're comparing to, now white people are the majority of the country. Their household income as by average is about 42,000 pounds per household. Mm -hmm. The black Caribbean household, but uh, if you if you compare, is about twenty five thousand um, pound 
um, per, per, per household. So you end up comparing people in completely different situations and different places um, socioeconomically um, in relation to their, their functions as family, when they really needs to be broken down um, a bit more. And then that's what gets perpetuated out. But at the same time, if we're talking about accountability, we there, there, there is you would say disproportionate even if you compare it within our in yeah. in our in our own community um, with with that Caribbean fam, Caribbean families. Now, you received an MBE. Okay. Yes, sir. Now, <laughs> tell us about that. Now we can go. I'm not, I, I, what I'm not going to do in this podcast is say why did you take it. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, look, <laughs> you was acknowledged for good work. I'll answer that as well. I don't mind. Okay. I'll answer that as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, we'll touch on mm. what you received an MBE. Okay. Mm. What was that like? What What did it feel like when you first got that news? How did it come about? <laughs> how did it? How did you get even get it? You get like a gold letter or something. <laughs> well, well, what had happened is. I almost didn't receive it because um, I think they were trying to contact me and I didn't receive the letter. You know, sometimes how post goes in the ends, you don't, you don't always get the letter, right? So um, they, they said that they had um, tried to contact me and it was like the last day before I accepted it. So they contacted me on the phone. And, um, you know, I spoke to the person who nominated me and she, it was a total shock. And she had said that, you know, it actually taken her about two years for her to get the nomination through. Um, so immediately, to be quite honest, it was very, it was very humbling because I, I did not accept it for me. It, it's, ne- it's never really been about me at all. Um, it has always been about the community. And so to be nominated and, and to represent the community, knowing you know, knowing where I'm from, <laughs> you know, knowing mm. the history and, you know, even personal history and all of that, you know, it was really, really, you know, it, 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 it I felt it, you know, it went, went to the heart. Um, that actual day I went with my, my two children and my wife and um, it was an amazing day. And it was quite interesting because I... In everything, I, I try and represent the community. So when I went and went to the ceremony, I made sure that, you know, I wore my Agbada, you know, and, mm. you know, my... my I saw the pictures. Yeah. yeah, because it was the symbolism. And, you know, as you introduced me, you know, my um, birth name was, you know, Rodney Grant. And um, many people often want to say, oh, are you related to Bernie Grant? And no, no, we're not related. But even then... It's the legacy of even like his 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 father his 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 father Alex is actually one who ensured that I went to a supplementary school called the Young West Indian um, Supplementary Education called YWise, and we were imbued with a sense of real pride and history and knowledge. You know, it was the first organisation that took us to you know um, Black Heroes in the Hall of Fame. You know, we went to the African village in Akoa, and that was in Tottenham, right? And so, you know, I met Bernie Grant once and we had a joke and it, it was the th- acknowledgement, however, the reason why I wore the, the traditional was because they asked us to wear 
um, was it fine clothing? I don't think that's the exact term, but it was something like that. So the finest clothing I could wear would be my traditional mm. wear, right? And the reason why is because I remember when Bernie Grant went to, he was the first MP, a black MP, um, to go into the Houses of Parliament. And when he went, he also wore his Agbada. And when he went to the House of Parliament, they booed him and made monkey noises and they chanted at him. That's what they did to our MP. And so the reason why I um, wore that was a representation of that connection and that culture to understand, no, we, we here. <laughs> like, you know, we, we here. We're not, we're not wearing like a monkey suit to get an award that my community is giving me. It's the Queen, for me, was a representation of the community giving me the award. The Queen herself, to be honest, she looks like any other old lady. I've seen other tanties that look bigger and stronger. She is a representation of power. However, you know, I thanked her. We had a quick conversation. And it was even quite funny because there's a hall that you go into before you get your awards. And there was a lady I was speaking to and she was commenting on all the various different um, pictures of, you know, the aristocracy. And she was asking about, you know, who was the better leader. And she felt that, you know, women were better leaders, etc. And I, I really didn't want to answer, but she kept pushing the question. And my response to her was, well, when you've got these people in leadership, the, the, the difficulty is that, you know, they have to enforce their rule to lead. And by enforcing your power, you can only be so great. And I said, I see greatness every day when I see a grandmother who's trying to feed her children after losing her daughter. Or where I see somebody who's just come out of pen, but they're trying their best not to go on road again. That's greatness for them. Mm -hmm. But I see great every day and I didn't need that. And if anything, um, with the MBE, it was really so that I could be a voice to those who need the voice leverage and, and support them on that. And unfortunately, we live in a society whereby titles and positions are sometimes oh, yeah. things that put you above the parapet. Mm. So, um, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was the experience. But I'm still honoured um, to represent my community, to, to really be a voice for the community. Yeah, because I, when I um, um, saw it, your um, profile, um, I can't remember how I, I, we even came across each other. Mm. Um, but um, I, I just found it very interesting because you looked mm. still young. You looked, you looked like Mandem and you said MB, MBE. So I was like, I did a little research. I was like, actually, this would be a great podcast, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. um, absolutely right off our street. So I reached out and you... And you there was no big, big um, Charlie uh, behavior. He said, "Yeah, straight away. You didn't. You, you, <laughs> it wasn't. You, wasn't, you weren't acting up um, like some <laughs> people do." And I, and I, and I appreciate that. Now, obviously, you got the MB. Mm. You met the Queen, but mm. it's, it's, the fact that there's even a Queen is just so mad. I mean, you go meet her. She's a she's a human, right? She's yeah, <laughs> of, course. of course. There's absolutely no reason why she should be. Um, um, uh, more important than anyone else, but that's that's the world we live in. So, mm. you got you you got you got the MBE. Now, what is the process of being nominated? What, so, how do, how do you even nominate someone? <laughs> so you have um you have different 
kind of tiers of nomination and you've got I think two windows so you've got what's called the Queen's Birthday Honours and then you've got another honours so they're two kind of slots and um, I was nominated through the civil service so um, someone within senior management mm-hmm. saw a lot of the impact that I had in the community and advocating for them and just wrote a piece in terms of all the things that I had actually done and then that gets taken I think to um, assessors mm-hmm. where they they double check to make mm. sure that's true and then they come back and and if there's any queries then they ask for more information which i probably think they were doing since mm. it took that long yeah. um but no they really go through it apparently through a fine tooth comb and then they make their decision um so it was a total surprise for me to be honest and it's you know it's one of those things where i i, I mean the most touching thing for me was you know i spoke to a colleague and he was saying that when he heard that I received it, he was like, oh, wow. It's like, you know, when, when, when you got it, it's like, because I know you, it's, it's, it's like the man them got it. Yeah, got it yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like for that, if, if someone could kind of see that and say, look, it's not about like your circumstances, it's, it's and I don't want to say it's so cliche because it's not, but don't let people limit what you can do. Like, I mean, sometimes even your loved ones are going to do that out of love. They're going to limit what they say mm. you can do. Mm. Don't let people go get that, you know, yeah. go, go and get it. And it, it's yours to get. If you've got it there, go and get that. And um, I think, I, th- I think if I, if I could be an example for, for even someone to think, wow, I could do that. You know, I, there's, there's nothing special in terms of where I lived. <laughs> um, like, I, 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 I probably, to be quite honest, could talk about more painful experiences than anything else. And I think that maybe, if anything, sometimes you have to go through the pain. And it's, it's that ability to use that, that pain that also generates your motivation to do what you need to do. Um, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with going through the pain. Go through it, get that, and then go and do what you need to do. Because not everyone's going to understand you or see where you want to go, but go, go do it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I always often say, mm. I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that's yeah. the fun and 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 uh, fun in the journey and the enjoyment in the in the, in the in the success of the goal is that coming from nothing to something. People who come from something to something, you kind of giving it. You you kind of giving it. You know. <laughs> Listen, listen. What, what, one of the things I learned, and I, I teach my son, my son's five years old at Zion, and he, I say to him, like, it's, it's Garvey, I said, with confidence, you've, you know, you've, um, sorry, without confidence, <laughs> you're twice defeated in the race of life. With confidence, you've won before you started. Absolutely. If I've started here, and I know you've had all the benefits, and I'm still here, I'm already better than you. Yeah. Like, and and it's it's that thing of no you have to know that and that oh, that don't get me wrong that comes with time and that comes with like breaking and growing and yeah, going yeah. through you know like that self discovery and all that I'm not saying it's just oh whoop to do yeah know yourself it's not that but you know I promise anyone is that go and get that dream go and get it go and get it and if you don't know make make an action make a step phone somebody do something. But don't just feel that it's not for you and it's for other people because that's not true. Because many of the people in those positions 
and I've seen it so many times. People in positions that don't have half the skill that half of our youth have, but yet they have the confidence to take that position. Always, always. You, you. I, I promise people: the higher you go, the people you meet, the the surprise you'll find about their incapabilities, <laughs> and they never grew up in no estate. They didn't oh, grow yeah, up in. Listen, <laughs> it, 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 so many things, and it's just like when you reflect on like certain things is you just you kind of laugh you're like wow like really wow okay this so is this, the person this is right. yeah this is the person i was i was thinking was a a demigod <laughs> that, that, that. Yeah, that one okay cool all right so i'm gonna take this then yeah exactly so <laughs> you know look your name mm-hmm. so now, one of my big gripes because mm-hmm. lucky enough i'm i'm half Caribbean, I'm half Ghanaian. Mm-hmm. So I took my dad's surname, which mm-hmm. my dad was Ghanaian. My, my mom's from St. Kitts. Okay. Right? So my surname is a Ghanaian surname. So now, one of my gripes with people from the Caribbean is that they choose to keep their name. They yeah. choose to yeah. keep the slave yeah. master's name. Yeah. And I, I, I had a bit of an argument, not an argument, but a debate about Go on. it. Because they, someone told me that mm-hmm. one of the reasons they wouldn't change it is because the name represents the struggles of their ancestors in the Caribbean. And if they were okay. to choose an African name, who mm-hmm. would it represent? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 look, man, there's an argument for everything in life. But I feel that uh, one another um, thing of taking ownership would be if the majority of black people change their names. To mm-hmm. African surnames. Mm-hmm. Now, just tell us a bit about your, 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 the reason why you changed your name because it might be not okay. that, it might be something else. Yeah. So I, I, I want to acknowledge, um, I think that I think certain, certain viewpoints about names as well because I don't think there's a hard and fast right or wrong to this, to be really honest, right? And I think oftentimes it's, it's that bridge work sometimes we have to do between you know, our family on the continent and the family in the Caribbean to get to a certain level of understanding. So reason why I changed my name is exactly as you said. Um, I did a lot of kind of introspective work in terms of finding out where my connections were, finding out where my roots were. I knew already that within my, my mother's line, we were what's called Garifuna people. So we were um, part of a line of indigenous black people that are still in Central and South America today, which were part of the Caribbean like indigenous communities, right? And my um, great-grandfather, he always said that he was Mandinka. So already I, was, I felt I benefited from at least having a little bit of that knowledge that's passed on, because not everybody necessarily has mm-hmm. that. And not everybody has been afforded maintaining some of their connections with the Caribbean, and as I said, you know, I, I did do my, a lot of my secondary school in St. Vincent. So I saw some aspects of the culture. I knew that where I lived was actually um, like 15 minutes away where our Garifuna chief, um, Chatelier, was actually killed in, by, by the British in 1797. So for me, part of that work, and it's been a long-standing work, was really, okay, 
finding out the interconnections of myself. And, you know, I went through not just one DNA test, but several DNA tests because they have different algorithms. And a lot of my heritage on my, like, mother's line um, comes from Guinea-Bissau. Like, most of my DNA comes from Nigeria. So I'm Omo Niger. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's That's, like, the major part. And so um, the, I think the difficulty, and I understand some of what that person said, is that when you're changing your name, it's not just you're changing your name. You are actually becoming something else in mm-hmm. the sense of you are a new person. And because even when people are identifying with you, they think, oh, what, let's say you were like Smith and you changed your name to, or like, um, like, I don't know, like Ankara or something like that. Yeah. You know, like Ankara, who's that? And so you're when you've had a period of okay, you're already disconnected from your root, you've built up your connections within your family, you know your family from the Caribbean, but then you're almost making another split again for the mm. sake of reconnecting, but then you're not sure what you're connecting to. I can understand that some people might not necessarily see that as fruitful or be ready for that. For me, um the name represented my my kind of foundations and also like homage to my heritage so rahim is the homage to kind of like the the mandinka side where it, rahim means merciful and when you're looking at mukepara um, that's when you're going back into your kemetic tongue and the representation i could really give a uh, best approximation is one who overcomes um, triumph. And the symbolism is a son that is birthed from the waters. So that's, that's what Mukepara actually means. And so it's not so much just a name, it's my calling then. Because when I embody that name, it's already telling me what I need to do and how I live your life. And that's how names I feel traditionally were. They told you what your mission was. Mm. It wasn't just, all right, Charlie, <laughs> you know, like whatever name, whatever names like like rhyming slang. No, you you are able to act and present and be an agent in this world based upon those forces within you that you that you bring out. So that name represents that. So that name you've given to your son? Is a surname as well? Or... Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but my in... son, but strange enough, my son, um, his majority of his name, except for his surname, um, represents yeah something else. So he he has different aspects of that. Okay. So look, I mean, we can talk all night. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we we've we struck up quite a a discussion here now. For the listeners, as I said, I like it to be a, a, a solution-based podcast. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the feedback people get, up get, get is that like people have been inspired, people have taken action um, from listening to um, our, our words as they drive or as they clean their house or whatever they're doing. Um, what would you say for for any youths or parents listening in? to this as we've kind of skirted around various topics would be some of the recommendations that they take forward to better themselves even if they are in a position of 
difficulty, deprivation, mm-hmm. um, whatever it may be. What is it you would recommend to them? Okay. Um, let me start with the youth because I think that'll be easier. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so be prepared to honor them. You know, be prepared to to not know and be in a space where you, you really don't know. Okay, and be what's the word I want to use? Sometimes things aren't always hard as we make it out to be. Okay, like um, and and sometimes most of the time it's actually the action that's most important. It's not necessarily even the right action. Um, many people will actually say that, okay, this is the right pathway, or that's the right pathway, particularly when we talk about careers. And careers is kind of funny because when people think about careers, they think about a job, right? But the other way of looking at a career is that that's something that's going up and down and all around the place. It's not, you know, you career off the road. Mm. And, um, you know, to be fair, like if you're talking about like a job space, like they say on average, a person will have at least six careers, if not more you know, before they end, end like their, their working life. So I think it's, it's, it's really about finding out what you like and what you don't like. And you only are able to do that by putting yourself sometimes in uncomfortable spaces. Some of those spaces may be paid. Some of them might not be paid. But it's really about, and it's not even necessarily about the money. It's about your network. And it's about you being able to ask questions and being able to be teachable. Like being able to someone to say, okay, well, this is how you do it. And you just listen if you don't know. And then maybe when you get some more knowledge, maybe question afterwards, right? If young people are looking for opportunities, generally for any employer, it's really about you showing your value to the employer. So, Yes, that comes through skills, but that also comes through experience. And that's why I said, I think, on one of the posts, when I was like highlighting all the different jobs I had had, you know, at the end of the day, like you have many people who are going to go to university. I went to uni, nothing wrong in that. But then understand that when you're going to, going to university, at the minimum, you're investing at least £27,000 into that business. The university is a business. They don't tell you that at school. It's business like any other business, yeah? You're the product. And actually, half the time, they don't generally care whether or not you kind of flunk after the first year because they've already got their nine grand for the year. So if you're staying there for a minimum of three years, you're investing probably around £30,000 to ensure that you have some kind of career or future. So make them work for that. Yeah, Go to the careers office. Make sure you join the societies. Make sure you kind of do some research on what competencies and skills you need to get into a summer scheme, harass them because that is what they're there for. Um, after you finish uni, they're gonna write some or send some survey to you to ask, okay, what you've done in your career after the three or six months because that's how they get funding. So like, don't get it twisted. Like they're, they're and I think one of the things I think that I was naive about is understanding that when I went to university, it was just another aspect of the trap. <laughs> yeah, people think it's just yeah. trap on road, right? Yeah, we're still paying it's, for that trap. Yeah, <laughs> academics is a trap as well. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people not necessarily get the support they need. Actually, particularly a lot of our brothers from the continent who have 
mortgaged and had their family spent savings to go and study and they were purposely failed by universities because the university was getting at that time when I was paying like maybe like 3,000 a year they had to pay more than double so they would never want to go back to their home country to say that they failed so you have people working full-time jobs trying to pass uni going literally mad I've seen people on Prozac going mad at university I've known that one person at least commit suicide at university so it's not a game either way there's some like everything else if we if we're going to talk about like <laughs> like like road talk and stuff like sometimes uni comes like ops <laughs> like, you know sometimes it's like that depending on you know what what course and what you're doing so you have to kind of look at it okay how am i going to get my return from it because it's, it's it's a business and make sure you get that and make sure you make your connections and your wealth they say is your network your network is your wealth now for parents, and the reason why I probably left this to last was I'm a parent as well, and I, I appreciate the, the difficulty, is that sometimes we have to be prepared to say that we don't know, you know? And sometimes we have to be prepared to support our children in the thing that might not be the traditional thing. But at the same time, it's for us to support and go and get that information um and go and find those resources but the truth of the matter is i mean there's something that you know my older son talks about i have no clue right um but then i also appreciate that i don't have a clue so then okay who might be somebody who might have a clue maybe i can assist in finding that person and so we could do a lot more to whilst we want to be protective and supportive also not kind of condemning them in terms of areas that we really don't understand and it's okay to say we don't understand that's fine you know and it's it's that kind of being prepared to say okay we're custodians for our children but we don't necessarily want our children to be clones of us and that's not always a dip, an easy thing for us to do because we want our children to have a successful life to be safe and etc but again we have to let them make their mistakes and learn from that with the best support. I'm not saying just leave them there and, you know, let them go ragged or anything like that. But there is something to be said on um, kind of like just knowing where we can support. And it might be just asking them how they feel or having conversations with them. Again, it's that building their trust so that they can be secure and confident to come back to us when we have difficult, they have difficulties and problems. Yeah, I think you, you, you said it. Um, you definitely, yeah. I, I li I'd like to call uni an attachment to earnings. That's what <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I think uni is the pre-mortgage training. I think that's I'm, yeah, st yeah. I'm still seeing that, um, that payment. <laughs> it's um, no it's no joke it's no and it's so bad when you know particularly in school and there's so many different options and sometimes you have schools that say no you have to get your gcse's and after your gcse's your a levels and after a levels because most schools are funded for that route way mm. um they're not always funded to provide apprenticeships so that's why they don't talk about it they're not yeah. funded to talk about like different t levels and it's ridiculous you know, yeah, they don't. They it's, don't. It's, 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 it's absolutely, I almost a national scandal that yeah. apprenticeships are not actually the main route, actually, because well, you learn a million times more in the bloody job 
yeah. than sitting in a bloody um, lecture room. Okay. <laughs> this this is the thing, yeah. I I um I'm I'm not for or against apprenticeships. I think everything is about the plan that you have and what you're going to use it for. Because there's some apprenticeships that are really quite high level and they give you access to industry. The problem is is that many people who are in, let's say, your either public school or let's say like your you know higher state schools they will target them based upon their high GCSEs, et cetera. Mm. So many of our young people who might not even see the light of day to even get access to them. The other aspect is, I, I think you're 100% right. I mean, in certain subjects like entrepreneurship and even things like, I don't know, data science programming, if you're on a university syllabus, arguably, that information's already outdated by the time you started the course, right? <laughs> because things... <laughs> things in the world of business and and you know that kind of analysis like it moves really quickly so maybe a route might be to get more practical experience or even if it's a case of you doing a separate project and building a portfolio to say look i tackled this problem look at this with something else that might go further in the three years than someone who's using an old language and frameworks that doesn't even like apply in the world of business you know right um, like, you know what I mean? Film editing. Like, you don't need to go to university to do film and media and stuff. Pick up your camera, do the editing. Go on, uh, go on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've, I've got two degrees. And I Me tell too. you... Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell you, I learned more outside of that place than in it. Yeah. I, you, I mean, look, it, I think uni is great. It gives you... Mm. The main thing I took from uni is the, the, is, is becoming a critical thinker. Um, mm, yeah. Underpinning what you're saying with... That's why I use stats a lot, because look, mm. stats are not perfect, but at least it allows mm. you to underpin some of what you're saying as opposed to just how you feel. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes you just people are just spraying out things and it's just based on how they feel. Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, let's, 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 let's prove some of it. But the majority of what you're doing there is all theoretical. It's all theoretical yeah. and it's out of context to the real life scenario and situation. And yeah. often when you get into the real situation, you're often not even referring to some of these frameworks and theoretical approaches because yeah. <laughs> you found a better way. So yeah, I, 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 look, I don't, I don't hate UD, but I just think that some people are not even academic. Um, yeah. And they're really, really, really just common sense on the job learners who work that way and it's a, i think it's scandalous that people are forced into this academy academic where you're sitting in the library until 12 a.m writing a, a bloody essay with <laughs> when it's not their thing they actually could yeah, just yeah. learn it from a net someone who's um experienced in it and by the end of the three years you'd be the same capabilities or they'd be better than you probably it's it's, it's so mad i think that me at uni so let's say first year, if I remember properly, I think that was my PlayStation year. And exactly. <laughs> it doesn't even count. Really, I swear, I swear it was just Tekken. That's the only game I remember playing <laughs> first year. And um, it, it's kind of funny because I think that I got involved in a lot of societies and stuff. So if I had a certain mindset, I probably said, yo, why don't I just like, like host raves and stuff? And like, because uni is yeah. the best place for like so many different people, yeah, right? So yeah. I, I could have just done raves and have an event management company and just do that for like three years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so um it's it's that kind of thing i there's there's no one way and i think that's also the lesson as well for parents there's no one way and when something gets blocked there's always another way to get through there's never like a final that's that's be done regardless like i've i failed my a levels um god what so many different things i've done i've already talked about you know my scn being dyslexic and everything else um it's it's just the case of it's just how you see it and and are you going to then have strategies or be brave enough to build strategies to get around things that you see are challenges so yeah yeah well on that note yes yeah, sir we're gonna wrap up it has been a Thank pleasure you. Um, Raheem Mu Capera. I, I hope so. Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, hopefully, I've got it right here because I'm, I'm not calling you by your original name anymore. No, um, no, like Muhammad Ali. We don't do that, Cassius Clayton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, and uh, I highly respect everything you've done. Um, yeah. it is a uh, is we're, we're proud of you, um, as Thank a community, you. and um, for sure, we'll keep in touch. and Hopefully we can work on a few things together to, 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 to try and push through this mindset. It's a mindset. And as many people we can touch as possible. Look, we, we can't, we haven't got a big net. We're going to take everyone with us. But even if it's one, two, three, four, five, 20, 30, 50, whatever it is. Yeah. We did, our, we did what we had to do. Um, so until next time, indeed, big up.